Kia ora, welcome. Great to be here. How are you? How are we? Come on, team. Come on over in the right wing. How are we? Yes. You're obliged to say yes, by the way. I don't want you to start pouring out your heart. That's going to get awkward uh, in an auditorium of this size. I'm pretty excited tonight. I don't know about you, but I finally get the chance for the first time in four years of being here to teach the book of Ephesians, and I am so excited. How many people um, think that like Genesis is their favorite book in the Bible? No, Leviticus? Oh, yes. No, that was, that was up there for Genesis, right? Not actually Leviticus. Okay. And uh, any, anybody else want to share Ephesians with me as the ultimate book in the Bible? Yes. There's a few hands going up there. Before I came to the street, uh, like week in, week out, if I had the chance to preach anything, I would just default to Ephesians. I love the book. And, um, and so it's really cool that we get to teach uh, through it now. Um, if you uh, don't know me, my name's Simon. I'm teaching pastor here. I have been for the last four years. And, um, and uh, I've had a bit of a break. So if you're new, you won't necessarily know who I am. I do about a third of the, the Sundays here and uh, in terms of teaching. And I've had a, a break of about four or five weeks. And it's just been amazing as Nick finished off the Galatians series and then took us through this incredible vision series called Uncontainable, where we've really been discovering uh, where we're going as a church, what this now means for us, a sort of new normal. And it's been cool for me not to have to teach and just to sit there and sort of soak it up and be inspired and be challenged by it and and uh, I've loved how practical it's been. Anybody else love how just down to earth practical it's been? I know for me, you know, quiet times and journaling have been really different since some of those messages. So, um, so in terms of feedback, in terms of people reflecting on those messages, I've heard somebody say, "Look, I, I see that this is a sort of big vision. You know, I see that this is cool and inspiring, and it's up there and out there and." But isn't, on the other hand, isn't this sort of what the church should be? Like, isn't this, like, there's nothing really new in there, isn't it? Isn't this just what it means to follow Jesus as the church, you know? And we're like, absolutely. Absolutely. This uncontainable series has really been about stripping back to what it is that God would call the church to do. You know, we want to be the church. I mean, that's what Uncontainer was really asking. We want to be the church. We don't want to be the church that tradition dictates. We don't want to be the church that people expect in society. We don't want to be the church that, um, that is boring or comfortable or anything like that. We want to be the church that Jesus died for, the church that Jesus calls out, the church that Jesus is empowering. And that's what we want to become. And so we want to learn what that looks like. And the thing is, this desire to reach a city is not new. There has been a church community of the street that, under different names, seamlessly goes back almost 100 years now. Out on Tory Street, some people put a church building, they put a mission hall, and they rescued drunk guys being led away from town up to the barracks, up to the police barracks on Buckle Street, and they take them in and they give them coffee. Who knew that that the coffee has been in the DNA of this church for almost 100 years now. You know, you thought it was new. It's not. Uh, it's been going on this time. And they sober them up and they tell them about Jesus. You know, that Tory Street area was a slum. And there were kids programs and people that would go in there and reach out to families. And they saw incredible opposition. They saw ridiculous things happen. But, but there is this DNA that has run throughout the years here, throughout almost a century, of a desire to reach this city. What we're wanting to do is, is nothing new. 
So it leads us to this question, well, what does it mean to be the church? How do we ensure that this four-week series called Uncontainable that we've, we've done doesn't stay contained within those four weeks? Now, a little side for you there. You know, I, I, I like to think of it like this, that if this is of us, if Nick just dreamed up this series while he was admiring his lawn, then it'll fizzle out. But if this is of God, you won't stop it. If this is of God, you will not stop it. And if you're apathetic, if you're cold to it tonight, do you know what I believe as God begins to move, you're going to get swept up in it. You won't be able to resist it. I, I, I was talking to a guy this week who I said to him, how are you reflecting on the series, on this uncontainable series? And he said to me, I was really cold to it at the start. But this is what's been going on in me this week as I've been walking to work and praying and God's been leading me to speak to people and I've been sharing stories with my wife and with, with those around me of what God's been doing in my life. And he stood and he shared that story this morning. And he just began to well up. And this is a guy who was cold four weeks ago. Now just is a different man. And like Jenny and I saw him this week and he's just a different man. And I honestly believe this. This is of God. It doesn't matter how cold or apathetic you are. I believe that you're going to get swept up in it. So we want to discover what it means to be the church. So that leads us to one book that teaches on the church more than any other. You know, about six, seven years ago, somebody said to me, Ephesians is the queen of the epistles, the very best of the letters. And, and somebody, uh, and, and they said, you know, you want to read this book. And so me being me thought, why, why read it? Why not just learn it? And so I, I had a go at learning it. And I didn't get all the way through it, but as I sowed those words into my head and into my heart, no other book has so shaped my view of the church. No other book has so changed my theology, my view of Jesus, my understanding of who I am in Christ, and my expectation of how God wants to use each and every one of us in a contribution towards maturing us as a church and going out as the body. And so we want to teach on that. We want to take some time out. We're going to take... a a lot of weeks out. There's going to be some little breaks in there. We're going to take a lot of weeks out. And you might think, oh, that might get a bit boring. I want to challenge you and say week in, week out, we're going, to, we're going to discover more and more of what it means to really be the church. And you might have a life group that, that pushes pause on series sometimes and wants to do little studies on different things. Maybe you want to study what it means to be mature or what it means to be emotionally healthy. And all of those things are good. But can I encourage you, don't miss the opportunity to discover what it means to be the church. Don't miss that opportunity in your life group, in your mentoring relationships, in your own personal life to really get a grip of what Ephesians is talking about. We're going to start tonight um, with a little introduction because, we've got, because we really want to look at, you know, how do we transition out of uncontainable and into this, into this series on Ephesians. And because we're going to take a lot of time in it, we want to do a little introduction tonight. So we're going to talk about Ephesians and not really read much of it. Actually, I'm going to teach Ephesians from Acts and from Revelation. So why don't you join me? We're going to pray and then we'll get going. God, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that there is nothing in all eternity like the church. God, I pray that you'd show up in power tonight. We believe that as we open your word, Spirit of God, you're going to shine the spotlight on Jesus. You're going, to, you're going to cause words to leap off the page. God, you're going to cause your spirit to resonate in our hearts like never before. I pray if we're distant from you. I pray if we're cold to you. I pray that if we're apathetic. Jesus, I pray if nothing else, that we would walk out of here with a greater passion for Jesus, a greater perception of the church and the calling that we have and a better understanding of our role in it. So God, we give you these brief moments we have right now in Jesus name. Amen. You'll be pleased to know I've turned on the screen and I now know how long I have left. 
57 minutes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay, so Ephesians. Okay, Ephesians is a letter to Ephesus. I should actually comment on this. Somebody said to me this week, um, th- this slide doesn't look like Andrea designed it. And I said, no, Andrea didn't design it. Sasha did. And uh, so that's really cool. This, the pic, the, as we move on through Ephesians, this theme of walking, living, uh, as the body of Christ begins to take shape. And so that's what this sort of walking depicts. And uh, the little triangles represent people, I think. That's how I interpret it. Anyway, Sasha will probably tell me I'm wrong. But the point is, that, that we are this dwelling, this gathering of people now walking as a body, living in a new way and with purpose. And so that's sort of what that represents. Some of you might think something differently, but there we go. I thought I didn't talk about it this morning. I thought I should mention it to you guys. Anyway, Ephesus, where are we talking? So Paul, um, uh, you can see this yellow, uh, yellow area on the right of your screen. That's Syria. And uh, just there's a little place sort of northwest of that yellow area called Antioch. And this became a hub for the gospel. If you look at the book of Acts, missionaries were effectively sent out from here. And so Paul has been out before and sort of circled back and come back to Antioch and, and made different trips, uh, different places. He has been sharing the gospel. He's been establishing, seeing believers, establishing churches, and then he's been writing to them and encouraging them. And this is the third major missionary trip he's been on. And so he heads up uh, that line that starts in the top of the screen and heads left. And he goes to Galatia. Remember, we've just been through Galatians. And, and so he's been there and established a church and he's written a letter to them. And now he's back through there encouraging them and reminding them. And then he heads into this terracotta area. I love that color. Terracotta. And we find him, when he gets to the west coast of that area, Asia, this is the Roman province of Asia, we find him in a city called Ephesus. And Ephesus is one of the most significant cities of this time. It was the third most important city to the Romans. After Rome and after Athens, you find this major city, uh, Asia. It is a major trader. It's a major port. So lots of sailors coming in, lots of trade coming in. It's a major trade route from the east, west, north, and south. And, and so lots of people coming and going through here, a really important um, junction. There was an 11 meter wide road. I mean, in a time where there were quite narrow roads, this is an 11 meter wide road running down to this major harbor. It has things like a theater that's half the size of the Westpac Stadium. And this is a significant place. And uh, it's also a fusion of culture. So you get Greek culture. Paul, when he first went there, spends two years debating in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. If, if anybody knows anything about Greek culture, they love knowledge. They love wisdom. They love, I mean, we are Greek in our, I mean, in, in our philosophy. They, they love knowledge. They love wisdom. They love debating these things and talking about them. And so Paul finds that sort of place. to to discuss spiritual beliefs. But against that, you have Roman rule and Roman power and Roman might and Roman glory. And and so in Ephesus, you have road signs in both Latin and in Greek. Just gives you a flavor of the sort of culture that's going on there. But the place, the thing that really makes Ephesus stand out is is its religion. If anybody knows anything about Rome, you'll know that they they had a God for everything. You know, Romans, we know of things like the the Roman God of war, the Roman God of love. But the Romans actually loved to hedge their bets. They wanted to make sure that every aspect of life was covered by a different God. And so you learn things like they had Roman God for war, for love, for fertility. But they also had gods for the sewers. They had gods for, for manure. They're genuine. The Romans had a god of manure. They had a god for absolutely. 
absolutely every aspect of their lives. So when they go into somewhere like Greek culture, they're like, well, clearly we're not just going to dispense with their gods. You know, we're quite happy to add things to that. And Ephesus is a really significant place. Because sometime in history, a meteor, it seems, has fallen out of space and landed in Ephesus. And so they think this is a message from the gods. And so they take this, this meteor and they set it up in a temple. They called it Artemis. And, and, and the temple that they set it up in was one of the seventh wonders of the ancient world. We're talking like rugby stadium sort of proportion uh, temple. And people would come across from the known world in pilgrimage to this place, Ephesus. You'd get people making silver replicas of this uh, god, of this idol, so they could take it back with them, maybe to where they live, maybe make it, make a little shrine in their home for this. So this is a sort of culture, many gods and lots of pilgrims coming into this city because this is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is this great god, this great symbol of fertility because it had lots of bobbles over it. Some people think it was this like idol covered in boobs, but anyway, it was a fertility god. I've said that in church. This fertility god, and uh, uh, the Greeks called it Artemis, Romans called it uh, Diana, and uh, that's the sort of culture, that's the sort of situation going on in Ephesus, and Paul arrives to begin to share the gospel. And who does he find there? We're going to take a step back tonight, I want to look at um, Acts chapter 19. Uh, You can turn there in your Bibles while I just introduce that chapter. If you don't have your Bibles, do not worry, I will read to you, just sit comfortably. You're going to enjoy this. But what Paul finds in in Ephesus, he finds 12 Jewish disciples. And the 12 Jews have responded to this to, to John's baptism. It's a baptism of repentance. They were, they were turning to God in preparation for the Messiah. And Paul goes in there and he says, the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. Do you believe in him? They're like, yeah, we believe. They get baptized. And then, the, and then Paul lays his hands on them and the empowering of the Spirit comes upon them. Now, if you were here last week, you would know that that's a pretty good description of a make a difference church. They believed, they were baptized, and they were filled with the Spirit of God and empowered for ministry. So Paul takes these 12 guys, and he goes out with the gospel. So we join it in verse 8. And I think this is a really good heads up for us, because we are wanting to be this Make a Difference church. So it's a really great heads up on what we can expect as we try and do that. Verse 8 of chapter 19 says this, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Number one, number one expectation is we want to be a make a difference church is that people are going to resist. There will be people who resist. There will be people who do not want to know. There will be people, and you know many of them already, and people who are going to, as a result of what we want to do, spread rumors about us, make up stories about us, lie about us. And this is just something we should expect. Paul goes on from there, but... um, So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and and had discussions daily, as I've already said, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul is like two and a quarter years in and there's not one convert yet yet reported apart from the 12 that he initially went in. Point number one is that we'll see resistance. Paul does incredible miracles though, verse 12. And when we pick it up in verse 13, there's some Jews there who are like, Hey, let's have a go at this. We're going to try some miracles. 
Verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Okay, stand up, hands up. Who wants to be a Make a Difference Church? Yeah? Lots of volunteers. Yes, God. So great. He loves Genesis and, and he wants to be a Make a Difference Church, even if the demonic strip him naked and cause him to bleed. Okay. Marvelous. Here's the point. Here's the point. We live in such a secular society. And these Jews, they thought, hey, we've seen some stuff going on. We've seen incredible miracles. Let's have a go. And they completely underestimated the spiritual realm. They completely underestimated that there is a real demonic. There is a a real Satan. And he is not happy about the gospel going out. And he will do anything and everything to stop it. And New Zealand might be a very secular nation. You go to India today, you go to Africa today, that is a very different story. They're very spiritual. They understand these things. We, we in New Zealand take pride in the fact that we're so educated and so advanced that we don't need the spiritual realm. And it is a dangerous thing. Can I tell you that as we want to go out with the gospel, we're going to see the spiritual realm begin to kick off. It's not, I'm not trying to bring about some sort of doom and gloom, self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm just giving you a heads up here. The spiritual realm is very real. Very, very real. But you know one thing that we know about this? One we pray in the name of Jesus as believers. These guys weren't believers. They were just trying to have a go. We're, we're covered in the blood of Jesus. Don't start addressing the demonic. Do what Michael the archangel said. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. We don't need to go addressing Satan or getting bigger. In Jesus' name, we go out with that. But also, this is for, you know, forewarned is forearmed. When this stuff starts to kick off, we'll know what's going on. Do you know what? The church was designed to be planted at the very gates of hell and push them back. So Jesus established the church. Believe in me as the Messiah. And he said, on that confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it with the church. Our purpose is to push back the gates of hell. And in Jesus' name, that is what's going to happen. So when the enemy kicks off, don't worry. Don't worry. What happens in that environment? Verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So great. Many of those who believed came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, and the total came to 50,000 drachmas. That's 50,000 days wages. At a living wage in New Zealand, that's more than $7 million. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. You know, there is resistance to the gospel. There is a whole spiritual battle that suddenly makes itself very well known. And yet in that environment, people saw Jesus for his power and his glory, and they began to believe. And from there, there was dramatic repentance. They saw Jesus and they knew that he was above all of those gods. And so they got rid of them. They burned them, never to go back to that life again. And they begin to follow Jesus. And the word of the Lord went through that whole province of Asia because of it. When you move on in chapter 19, I'm not going to read it, but there's a riot. And what happens is this guy, Demetrius, who makes a lot of money out of making these silver idols, these silver replicas of Artemis, he's not very happy. 
Because when people come to Jesus, they stop buying idols because they realize they don't need them anymore. They start spending their money differently. And so he gathers those, those uh, metal workers and he gathers other associated trades who are losing out because of Christians. And he starts, uh, starts a riot. See, because there's been this dramatic transformation in that city that means people are beginning to live differently and spend their money differently. I love the fact that when you read about things like the Welsh revivals, that society was so transformed at the start of the 20th century that people began to spend their money differently. There were guys who weren't getting drunk in pubs after work, but they were going home and actually saving their money so they could begin to provide for their families with food and clothing and things like that. The crime rate went through the floor. Sometimes, in some areas, it was just zero, and the only thing the police had to do was deal with the crowds who were wanting to get into church. You had miners who, who all they used to do was swear and curse at their ponies, that when they began to speak nice words, kind words to the ponies who would pull coal out of the mines, the ponies didn't understand anymore because they only understood swear words. And in the mines, you would hear miners, hardened miners, singing and praying and worshipping, and productivity went through the roof. Explain that. Society was changed, and it begins to lead me to say, if, the, if a num- great number of people in Wellington come to Christ, what's going to change? What businesses are going to go out? Because people are spending their money differently. What businesses are going to go out of action? Because people aren't spending their time there. Maybe they're at home. Maybe they're doing a better job at work. What businesses are going to thrive? Whales sold out of Bibles. I mean, it might be that if you're in Ephesus at this time, you want to leave your scroll manufacturing business and go and do something new because maybe there aren't going to be so many scrolls being sold for magical documentation. I'll leave that with you. What would Wellington look like? What will Wellington look like when a great number of people come to know Jesus? The reason for giving you this little background of all that's going on in Ephesus is because we see these themes in in the book of Ephesians. Because 10 years later, Paul has moved on and he then writes back to this community, this, this, the churches in this city, the groups of believers. He doesn't write to necessarily to a particular church. He writes to the saints in Ephesus. He says, this is what I want you to know. It's interesting that we find these themes. Number one, he proclaims Jesus as the supreme ruler. He says, this Jesus has a throne above all those rulers and all those authorities and all those powers and all those dominion. He has a name that is above every other name, not only now, but in all eternity. There is no one like Jesus. That's the message he proclaimed to the Ephesians. If we're a Make a Difference church and we're expecting to see things begin to kick off as a great number of people begin to come to know Jesus, then we, then we need to know these messages in Ephesians. Number one, Jesus reigns supreme. Over it all, above all, and through all. We also have to know that it's going to take a great deal of endurance and overcoming. And Ephesians, like no other book, gives us the purpose of the church. When Jesus was on the cross, Matthew 27, he'd already said, I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And on the cross, people said, you said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Get down now if you're the son of God. Now, firstly, what Jesus is doing on the cross is a picture of destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. He was going to die and rise again. But Jesus is also making a statement on the cross. He's saying, in my death and resurrection, I'm doing away with the old way of things. I'm doing away with the old temple. And I'm establishing something new, a new temple of which I'm the foundation. You want to know what that temple is? It's the church. 
It's this group of believers who are being, these people who believe in Jesus, who are being gathered together, who are being built to become a new temple in which God lives by His Spirit. And it is through that gathering of people, it is through that dwelling that all of eternity, all the rulers and authorities and powers and dominions are hearing a declaration of Christ's triumph and victory. It is, it is proclaimed now through the church. And the other thing that Paul can't seem to get past is this whole spiritual battle. He says, Jesus has incomparably great power for us who believe. Through the church, he is proclaiming before those rulers and authorities that Jesus Christ is Lord. And at the end, there's this whole chapter on the spiritual battle. And he teaches us to stand firm, to, be, to gird up, to, 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 to clothe ourselves in armor, and to pray on all occasions. Those are some of the themes that we're going to see coming up in Ephesians. But I want to finish with this. 30 years after Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians, we find the book of Revelation. All the apostles have died, bar one. You've got 11 guys who've been martyred, beheaded or, or crucified, some apparently crucified upside down. They died for the proclamation of the gospel. But one survives, his name was John. And he's, he's in exile on the island of Patmos, a Greek island. And he has a vision of the risen, glorified Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I want you, John, to write to the churches. Anybody want to guess church number one that he writes to? The church in Ephesus. And I want to read from Revelation 2 what he said. Because I think this is a good lesson for us. As we get busy, as we get on, as we want to try and be that make a difference church. It's a little lesson for us. Chapter 2 of Revelation, I'm going to start with verse 2. It says this, Jesus says, I know your deeds, Ephesians. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Now at this point, if you're Ephesus, you're like, great, nice words. Thanks, Jesus. We're really pumped about that. Yeah, it was hard, and we overcame. Yeah, it was hard work, and we kept going. We didn't grow weary. We didn't put up with false teachers. We just kept going. We kept on and on. We did what you were calling us to do. But Jesus is this, and this is where I want to part. This is where I want to finish tonight. Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. I love the fact that you've worked hard. I love the fact that you've persevered, but I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Have you ever had those moments where you do something that you're just hooked on? It's like that first experience of something, that first taste of something, that your life is never quite going to be the same again because of this moment. I had one of those moments when I was 17, I was skiing in the Alps. My uncle took me skiing. And that first time, the, the, the crispness of the air and the snow and just that rush plowing down a hill. I didn't know I had to stop at that point. Um, that came later. But that rush, there's no repeating that first moment. I was hooked. I knew that I had to get this thing more and more in my life. There are other things that, that would be a first love for you. A time when you first done something that you're like, my life is never quite going to be the same again. That was so awesome. I'm waiting for that moment at our dinner table. We have three girls. The oldest is 10. The youngest is 5. 
I dread to think who this is going to come through first. But that moment at the dinner table where maybe there's a boy's name that's mentioned a few times. And I know what it's like because I've been that person. I remember when I was about 21, 22. And uh, I was at home from uni. I was at the dinner table with my parents. And uh, it was weird. I'd spent the day with this girl called Jenny. And uh, it was an awesome like first date. We went to the gym. We, we got Nando's. I think it finished with a curry. Like I was sold on this girl. And it was weird because when I, when I, when I went home and I had dinner with my mum and dad, it was like... Everything my mum and dad said just seemed to have something to do with Jenny. Like, I, I was able to bring Jenny into the, every moment of the conversation. It didn't matter whether they were talking about work or, or food or home. It didn't really matter. It just, just this experience was so in my mind that, that every, every moment was like, well, I could clearly talk about Jenny here. And I think after about mentioning her for the, for, for the 25th time, I thought, you know what? I, I need to stop mentioning her name because I think they might know something's up. <laughs> and yet it's really easy from those moments. Some people enjoy my jokes more than others. It's so good. <laughs> but it's really easy for that to become a new normal. And, and that person just to form a part of your life and... And, 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 you know, don't talk about them so much or whatever. And really easy, just well, that's part of life now. You know, for the Ephesians, they, when they encountered Jesus, there was dramatic transformation. Seven million dollars worth of scrolls was just a drop in the ocean. They were never going back to that life because they'd encountered one who was more important. They please stop smiling. <laughs> they'd encountered one who would forever change their life. They were, they were never going back to that old way. And yet they got so busy doing stuff. Jesus just became a part of their journey. That when Jesus says, you've worked so hard, you've done, it, you've done so well, but you've lost that love you had at first. But the thing is, there's no going back and experiencing something for the first time. Do you know what I mean? You can't just go back and experience it for the first time. So what's Jesus talking about here? When he says, go back and, and do the things you did at first, they couldn't go back 40 years. They couldn't go back and see and, and, and stand in wonder at, at that portrayal of the power of God all over again. They, they, were, they would be numb to it. It just wouldn't be the same. You can't go back and watch a movie again and, and experience it in the same way. You've had that insight. You've had that moment. You just can't go back. So I don't know what Jesus is talking about here because you just can't do that. And yet I think as we go through Ephesians, you're going to find coming up time and time again, Paul is continually lost for words, lost for superlatives that truly describe the glory of Jesus. This word riches, you're going to notice it coming up again and again and again. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The riches of his glorious grace in your life. The riches of the boundless grace of God that we get to preach. 
And there's this theme that comes up again and again. Paul loves to talk about the word incomparable. We have incomparably great power for us who believe. He describes Jesus' throne as beyond compare. You add all the powers and all the rulers and all the authorities up on top of one another. And Jesus is still far above. There is no name like his name in all of eternity. His grace, the riches of his grace is beyond compare. And finally, Paul uses this word incomparable when he speaks of the love of Jesus. He says, you need need all of the power of God and all of the strength of God to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. You, you, You cannot get your arms around it, but I'm praying for you that you somehow be able to grasp the ingraspable. Jesus' love surpasses knowledge, but I'm praying for you that you may somehow be able to wrap your mind around it. And therefore, if God's love and His grace and His power is beyond really understanding, then week after week as we go through this book, moment by moment, God is able to reveal to you through His Spirit more of that love. And more of that grace. And more of that power. And I believe that day after day, week after week, as we study this book, you're going to have a first love after first love after first love. Because you're going to see things for the first time. And and you're going to express deeper praise. And louder shouts of worship. And be brought to your knees in adoration more and more times than you can count. Because that's who he is. And throughout all eternity, he's going to reveal more of himself. And everything is going to be more wonderful than you've known before. Because that's Jesus. And that's the gospel. And that's what we get to proclaim as the church. Amen? Come on, let's stand. We're going to respond. There's only I know how out of that. I want to respond in worship. some of you tonight, that's really, that's resonated with you. Maybe you've been a bit bored with church. Maybe you've become a bit complacent, just sort of going through the motions. And maybe even after four weeks in an uncontainable series, you're a bit numb to it. And we don't want to become such a busy church that we forget that first love. And we experience that afresh every day. And for some of you tonight, as we go into worship, that's the cry of your heart. Jesus, I want to see you like the first time tonight. I want to see something more of you, something deeper of you. But for some of us, I wonder if you're seeing Jesus for the very first time. And and in this moment, you want to say to Jesus, I believe in you. I've never done this before, but I believe and I want to follow you. And I, In talking about this incredible message that comes through the church, I would... I would not do that justice if I didn't give the opportunity to respond tonight, to believe in Jesus. And the Bible says, for God so loved you that he sent his son to die in your place. That if you believe in him, you won't perish, you won't die, you will inherit eternal life. And that life starts today for those who believe. And so I want to bow in prayer right now as we go into worship. If that's you and you want to say to Jesus, I believe. You just know in your heart, you you, you know, 
you just know you believe and you want to articulate that to God, come on church, let's join in prayer right now. If that's you, would you pray with me? God, I believe in Jesus tonight. I believe that you love me so much. I acknowledge that I've done things that have fallen short of your standard. And I need a Savior. And I believe tonight that Savior is Jesus. I received that salvation. I believe he died for me. But Jesus, I don't want to leave it there. I want to follow you. I want to live my life in a new way. I want to experience the life and the power and the majesty and the purpose of following you. So Jesus, lead me on from here. Whatever it means and wherever it means, I want to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, just with our eyes closed, heads bowed. If that was you tonight, you just prayed that for the first time, would you give me a quick wave? Just put your hand up real quick, put it down, be brave. So that was me. I don't know completely what it means, but I want to follow Jesus tonight. Great, come on, let's pray together tonight. Lord God, I pray tonight for those of us who want that revelation of a first-time love for Jesus. As we worship tonight, God, I pray that you do it by your spirit. Lord, I pray that the words of this book over the coming weeks will come alive in our hearts and alive in our minds like never before. Give us a fresh perspective, a fresh vision of Jesus. Lord, we love you so much, but we know there's more to you, and we want to see that, God. How can we know you unless you reveal yourself? So, Lord, we're saying we're desperate. We want to know you more. Show up, be revealed. Let us see you. Kindle, fan into flame. That love for you, we pray tonight. Spirit of God, would you fall in this place? Would you fall in this place? We pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. Do it right now, Jesus. Do it again. Just right now where you are, respond to God. You might want to lift your hands. You might just in your own heart want to pray. You might want to get on your knees. But just begin in your own way to respond to God right now. As we're going to worship, just respond. God, I want to know you. I want to know you better. I'm cold to you. I'm distant from you. I know the truth that I'm in you in Christ Jesus, but it's not how it feels. I want to know you more. Come breathe on me. Come pour out your spirit on me again. Come come bring new meaning and new clarity to your word. Lord Jesus, we give ourselves to you again tonight. Come on, church. Let's use these words. Let's use these words of songs to gather together and call out worship and praise the incomparable Jesus. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Come on, church, let's worship.